0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to our broadcast today, Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University and Professor of Health Services, Dean Ashish Jha. Welcome, Professor. Thank you so much for having me here. Dean, what are countries that are not experiencing a second and third wave doing right that the United States and European countries are clearly doing wrong?
1: Yeah, so in a word, they're taking it seriously. They're taking the virus seriously. And every time they see a little flare-up, they jump on it. They act aggressively. Um, they're doing a lot of the same things that we've been talking about, wearing masks, social distancing, uh, testing and tracing. But whereas we tend to let flare-ups linger and become outright you know, forest fires, uh, Europe has done the same thing. Uh, what we're seeing is many, many countries take it very seriously
0: and and stomp out those little flare-ups. So which countries specifically have been most successful in in seriously wiping out the flare-ups before they become epidemics in communities?
1: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. A lot of them are in East Asia, but they're not just East Asian countries. So the ones that people point to all the time, and, and rightly so, are... You know South Korea and Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, and Singapore and Japan, but also New Zealand, Australia have done all done a good job. Even if you go to Europe, I mean Germany is not doing a fantastic job compared to some of the East Asian countries, but much much better than the rest of the European countries, much better than the United States. Um, So you can find real pockets of excellence. Uh, and effective pandemic
0: control in many parts of the world. With respect to the pandemic control and the efficacy of the pandemic control to prevent, you called them flare-ups, we've also heard the term clusters or hotspots, what specifically in those communities have happened that prevents those flare-ups? Is it the partial shutdown has remained active or is it just a level of discipline in certain businesses or services that have prevented there from being new infections? Yeah. So what's interesting is that
1: there is no single approach. You can actually, there's three or four different choices you have. So let me give you some examples. In South Korea, a few months ago, there was a case of somebody, their nightclubs were open because their virus levels were so effectively suppressed that they had very little virus. And so they opened up their nightclubs. And one Friday night, I think it was a Friday night, uh, somebody who was infected and, and had no symptoms went to a nightclub and went to, ended up going to six different nightclubs that night, ended up infecting dozens and dozens of people. In a place like the US, that would happen, those people would then infect hundreds more, and eventually that would become a large outbreak that affected you know, many, many, many people. In South Korea, what happened was essentially they first shut down the nightclubs. Second, they tested literally tens of thousands of people in the, in the first five, seven days. They identified everybody who was infected. They identified everybody who was in contact with everybody infected. And they essentially shut that flare up down. They just, they stomped it out. So that's a very effective testing and t- uh, tracing strategy that South Korea was able to implement very quickly. New Zealand's approach has been different. When every time they see a flare-up, they actually lock down. And they lock down for two weeks. And they're able to stop propagation of the virus that way. Um, You know, Japan has really, has had fine testing. They've done really effective contact tracing. And they have pretty close to universal masking. But they deal with their flare-ups through a little bit of testing and a ton of really excellent contact tracing. So the bottom line is, you can take different approaches. The key principle here is you got to take it seriously and you got to
0: jump on it every time you see a flare up. I think you would suggest that the unseriousness of certain states in the aftermath of a first wave and the fact that many states and cities did not experience it at the level of New York City, for example, or Rome or Barcelona or Madrid has led people to be less serious, less disciplined in places that didn't have vast fatalities, mortalities. But of the descriptions that you offer, the, uh, the various approaches, with new public health leadership that may be in the future of this country, what would be the right approach in, in the decentralized 50 states that we have to manage contact tracing more effectively, given the size of the US? Um, what is realistic? And, and do we look at Uh, Australia? Do we look at um, Germany as examples of larger countries that were moderately more successful?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And what I would say is uh, we need a national plan and we need a national strategy, but it's got to get implemented within the states. And Germany is actually quite a good example because Germany has states and states have quite a bit of power in Germany, Uh, but you've had real national leadership. And Angela Merkel has done is made sure that while states have lots of flexibility on various things uh, and they can take almost any approach they want, they don't get to take no approach at all. Like they can't just blow the virus off because you know things that go bad in one state will end up infecting and influencing what's happening in all the other states. So what we need from a federal government is a strategy that makes tons of testing available, lots and lots of testing available, uh, helps provide resources and technical capacity for contact tracing. But you can imagine some states that say, you know, we're gonna do a little contact tracing, but mostly we're just gonna make testing widely available and really use that and do universal mask wearing. That's probably good enough. Um, Other states may say we have real problems with people not wearing masks. We're going to push on that, but we're going to make testing and tracing our primary strategy and go big on that.
0: Is one of the major problems, Dean, that several highly populated states, Georgia, Florida, Texas, for instance, decided to reopen in a fashion that was just totally impervious to the virus? Yeah. So if we go back to the end of May, early
1: June, uh, that was... It was completely predictable that the states that opened up and the way they opened up at the end of May, June was totally irresponsible. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at the White House's coronavirus task force guidelines for how to open up states safely. And all these states basically blew off those guidelines and decided that they were going to just kind of wing it and, and see what happens. Well, the virus uh, you know, you can't really wing it with the virus. Like the virus is basic biology and math. You do things that are not responsible and you will suffer in terms of infections and deaths. And that's what's happened. And- Would you
0: highlight that as the most irresponsibility, the states that have not implemented rigorous testing and that meanwhile reopened in a way that was like, normal, without plexiglass, without masks, uh, giving people the, the comfort of the pre-pandemic experience. Do you think that that is largely the cause of the major upticks that we've seen in what has been characterized as as a third wave, but really has just been one, you know, we know, one pandemic is, is right. a long you wave. Know, so I, I think there are a couple of things going on.
1: I mean, one is you certainly have a bunch of states, a bunch of state leaders who are sending the message that there is no pandemic or it's fine, or it's really not, it's pretty trivial. And you see the consequences of that in terms of huge numbers of infections, huge numbers of hospitalizations and people starting to die in in large numbers. Um, In other states, uh, I guess I have a bit more sympathy for some states that have struggled on things like testing because there are states that would like to have a lot more testing. I'm, I'm speaking to state leadership across the country. There are states that are desperate to figure out how to get more testing. The problem is there's a federal government who's not there to help them. And they just can't do this by themselves because so much of the testing de- depends on national and international supply chains. that states are just not well equipped to manage. And so the lack of federal leadership has really hampered a lot of states as well. Do you believe in the potential of
0: at-home testing
1: for this? Yeah. I mean, if we had it, look, we had the technology back in May that you could get these little strips of paper and you could do a home test. And and these little strips would cost a buck. By the way, we've had this technology since May, uh, where you could go to CVS or Walgreens and buy 50 of these things and test yourself every other day and test your family every other day. And it wouldn't be a perfect test, but it would be good enough that we'd get most of the people who are infected would get identified and you could bring this pandemic under control. That kind of technology exists now. The fact that we haven't deployed that technology to me is a travesty. It would have made such an enormous difference. It still
0: can if we can get those kinds of tests out there. What's your explanation for why that hasn't occurred? It seems like something that even this president would understand the potential of, and had Fauci and Redfield lobbied for it immediately, there may have been some backing for it. Yeah,
1: there, there were a couple of issues. I mean, one, and you know, to add a little complexity to this, these tests are not perfect. We don't have perfect at-home tests. And people have really, in the FDA and elsewhere, really struggled with, well, should we approve an imperfect test? And my answer always is, even when you can't get a test at all, that's, that's a really imperfect test, right? Like that's a test that doesn't exist. And imperfect is so much better than none at all. So I've uh, been an advocate, but not everybody agrees with it. There's also been a lot of hesitation in the White House to make anything available that will show that the number of cases are higher than what, they, than what is being reported. But the bottom line is you got to identify all the cases in order to bring the, in order to bring the pandemic Uh, under control. And so, but there is this mental mindset that if you make testing available, it'll show more cases and that will somehow hurt the president politically. And I think that has really influenced the approach that the White House has taken.
0: At the very beginning, we'll recall that there was a diagnostic criteria that made it impossible for people to be tested for precisely the reason that you're mentioning. Um, Dean Jai, you practiced and taught most recently at Harvard, now you're at Brown. Boston, just in these last 48 hours, has experienced a new major wave and has texted every citizen of the state and and city, um, in effect, a new stay-at-home order um, or something tantamount to a stay-at-home order. Uh, What what, uh, can you report from New England is transpiring there?
1: Yeah. uh, So I still live in in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, uh, even though I, I work in Providence. And so I've been obviously tracking very closely what's happening in both of these places. And what we're seeing in Massachusetts overall, certainly in eastern Massachusetts, Boston, is a real uptick in cases. Lots more infections happening. Hospitalizations are starting to climb. And now we're starting to see deaths tick up as well. So this is not the, uh, the old trope about, oh, it's just we're doing more testing. No, no, we've got a lot more infections happening. And I think it's a combination of things. Weather's starting to get colder. The virus does transmit a bit more efficiently in the cold, but I don't think that's the main issue. I think people are letting their guards down. And I also think from a policy point of view, uh, our state policymakers who've been quite good actually have uh, let their guard down a bit in terms of allowing for more in, uh, in-person dining and, Uh, and we have casinos open in Massachusetts. I mean, again, the kinds of things that really will drive up infections. And then, of course, more and more people are having uh, house parties and gatherings. I I think we've got to take a much more serious approach to this virus. This is not just something that's affecting other states, even in New England, that did such a good job over the summer. I think they're really about to get hit by a pretty big wall of infections and and, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to get very sick and, and a lot of people are going to die from this.
0: When you think of de-escalating the viral surges, um, at what point or what percent of infection rate you know, should have been identified prior to Boston having to issue, in effect, a new stay at home order? I mean, they missed people are missing the curve or at least the policymakers don't have the discipline uh, or don't have the courage to say to a public that may be exhausted, hold up. Yeah, you know, part of the problem here is we
1: use thresholds uh, in a lot of our decision-making. We say, oh, when the test positivity goes above 5%, that's bad. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, The way I think about this infection in the community is I think of it like a freight train in that it starts getting going and in the beginning, it's real, real slow. And so imagine that you sort of say, okay, you know, we're going to have a certain cut point. You go from 1% to 2% positivity and you're like, oh, we're still fine. Then you go from two to four and you're like, yeah, we're still below five. And then before you know it, you're at six, eight, 10%. And it's just, it's a runaway. It has so much momentum at that point you have to act really aggressively to shut things down and slow. Well,
0: and and it's, it's a new territory. We've talked about the new abnormal, but I don't think there are any precise scientific guidelines or any precisely literate scientific guidelines about what measures are implemented after two and a half percent, five percent, 10%. So you would hope that a new CDC an FDA regime would institute recommendations because states have gone it alone. They've had to go it alone.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So every I have, again, a lot of sympathy for states and municipalities uh, that are trying to sort this out all by themselves. And what you generally want to do, and the advice I've been giving, is if you go from 1% to 2%, you may be below your threshold, something has gone wrong, and you got to do something different. Because if you keep going, you will go from two to four, et cetera, et cetera. So you wanna start slowing things down before they get out of control. And, and you really have to think of this not as an on off switch in terms of how you deal with your economy, but as a dimmer switch. And if it's starting to get a little, little bright, you know, just dim it a little bit, take, take some things down, maybe stop indoor dining, uh, maybe shut down the casinos, but not anything else. Like figure out where the infections are coming from and act on that. But you want to do that early. You don't want to wait until things are really bad.
0: Right. And, and there are governors in states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island, uh, New York, where they'd see a 5% infection rate and shut down indoor dining instantly, uh, or maybe even a 2 or 3% rate and cut it off. Of course, we have states that have more disrespect for science, at least ostensibly, that have 10 15 20%. Uh, positivity rates and still have dining open let me let me ask you to to this question of what will make those states uh, understand the the difference of how they will save lives if they were to heed that kind of measure because there doesn't seem to be any interest in some states to identify percentage of positivity as a, as a threshold or criteria for shutting certain services down. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. And, and the problem is
1: that a lot of people have gotten into this erroneous mindset that there's a trade-off between the economy and public health. And so they look and they say, well, we got to keep the restaurants open because uh, the economy. But what they don't realize is that if that becomes the reason why infections are continuing to grow, Uh, large amounts of infection in the community is really harmful for the economy. It means people aren't gonna go out and patronize regular businesses. It means you won't be able to open up your schools and keep them open. It has all of these negative economic effects. I think policymakers keep looking at this stuff way too narrowly. And what we have learned from other countries certainly is if you look at a place like South Korea that has done such a great job, the economic effect on South Korea has been tiny of this virus compared to the economic effect of the United States. Um, Unemployment in South Korea has barely budged. I mean, it's gone up a little, uh, nothing like what we have experienced. So not only is there not a trade-off between the economy and public health, there's in fact quite a confluence between the two. Control the virus and your economy thrives.
0: What have you found the differences to be having practiced in uh, Boston and Providence in two New England states, um, that, that had varying success in mitigating the virus initially uh, but in the medical community and hospital zone uh, in the in the offices in proximity where you uh, work and uh, manage a medical staff and, and uh, colleagues what differences have you found over these months in First, first in, in Cambridge and and now in, in Providence, uh, or is the climate pretty comparable in the two places where, where you've overseen uh, staff and and uh, practiced?
1: Yeah, pretty comparable, I would say between between uh, Mass, Eastern Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Uh, both of these states, I mean, always there's always uh, a little bit of you know differences here and there, but uh, both of these places have gone through a very similar set of experiences in terms of the infection got hit hard in April and May. Uh, Both of them have done a very good job over the summer in managing the virus. And then both of them are seeing increases now that in ways that are concerning. So I think that pattern largely is uh, is really mirrored across these two states. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people uh, in Providence, but also back in, in, in Boston, uh, who got through April and May, you know, with a lot of infections, a lot of people dying, a lot of the healthcare staff. I think at this moment are feeling pretty apprehensive about having to deal with one more wave. Uh, they had thought that surviving the first one, uh, that we had largely we'd have good public health response and keep things to a to a minimum, so we wouldn't put the lives and well being of our frontline healthcare workers at risk. But unfortunately, that's what we're about to do.
0: How safe are uh- hospitals and medical communities now uh, for those who are being treated, there, there was a pause or moratorium on non-essential emergency treatment. Um, and I want to get a sense from you about the safety of, of hospitals and medical communities right now.
1: I, I think certainly around here, I would say very safe. Uh, I mean, nothing's a 100% of course, but uh, I, I would feel very comfortable uh getting uh medical care in a hospital right now uh that wasn't covid related even if it wasn't an emergency even if it was elective if it was important and i'll tell you why um as opposed to in march when hospitals didn't really know how bad things were going to get they didn't have good procedures in place and they were essentially kind of making it up on the fly and again i think they did a very good job this is not critique they were just in a very difficult situation. Most hospitals now have had seven, eight months to plan. They knew that there was a good chance that there'd be a surge coming in the fall. And so we may still see cancellations of elective surgeries, but I think it's really important for people to know that you know if they're having symptoms, if they need some, some sort of medical care, uh, that they can go to the hospital. They'll probably get a COVID test because we're generally doing that. Um, and that they're gonna get good care and that they're going to, and it's gonna be reasonably safe. We're not seeing a ton of hospital acquired COVID, thank goodness, and I think it's because most hospitals are doing a reasonably good job.
0: But it is the case that many of the hospital staff and nurses um, were infected and, and have uh, comprised a disproportionate number of infections and, and deaths, at at least in the early phases of the pandemic. Is that not as true now?
1: Yeah. I think in the early days we did see, um, a good number of infections, uh, among frontline staff. Uh, it is, uh, these days I would say in general, it's less true. I, I still, we still see occasional outbreaks in hospitals, um, But in general, I think it's less true. And that's because uh, we haven't necessarily gotten any better at procuring personal protective equipment for our frontline healthcare workers. I mean, certainly not the federal government hasn't done that much. But what we're seeing is hospitals have figured out how to do a better job recycling some of these uh, protective equipment. They've figured out how to uh, keep people safe. I, I think hospitals could still be doing more. Don't get me wrong. And I've been pushing hospitals to do more testing of their clinical staff. Uh, which would add another layer of protection, but it has gotten much better. Dr. Ashish Jha of Brown University, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on.